Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and pull out your Bibles and open up to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 5. As you know, we've been going through a series on 1 Peter. Uh, we've been making some good time on this book since we've uh, had the help from some of our deacons uh, coming in and sharing with us as well. I'm very thankful for them and, and how God is using them and their gifts to encourage and build up the body of Christ. Uh, as you also know, as we've talked through First Peter, the main theme is holy living in the midst of suffering. Holy living in the midst of suffering. And uh, we've looked and seen how God uses hardships and trials uh, to test us, to help us to grow, to purify us, to help us to become more like Christ. And so God uses those sufferings in our lives with an intentional purpose. And so we should not be caught off guard. We should expect them and know that they're coming and that God uses them for, uh, for his glory and our good. So we're going to be continuing in 1 Peter, and we're finally in the, the last chapter, chapter 5. This week I'm going to be talking verses 1 through 5, and then Pastor Preston next week will be finishing us off here. And so I invite you to read with me, not out loud necessarily, but... Uh, again, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. And Peter says, So I, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you and exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray once again before we jump into this. Father God, I just again come before you and, and pray for your wisdom and guidance and direction as we open up your word. Uh, Lord, there's, uh, it's easy to have division within the church as we talk about sometimes difficult subjects and topics. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, as your Holy Spirit works within us through the reading of your word, as we approach your word humbly, God, willing to set aside our own uh, presuppositions, our own uh, preconceived notions and ideas, Lord, help us to come to your, your word as empty vessels ready to be filled. God, I pray that you will teach us, that you will mold us and make us to be more like Christ. And as a result of that, we will be a church that reflects your glory. We will be a church that is worthy of being the bride of Christ. And so, God, we pray that you are honored and glorified in and through that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today, I'm, I might be a little less on the preachy side of things. might be taking off my um, tie, so to speak, and, uh, and wear more of a... What do, what do teachers wear nowadays? They don't wear ties. I don't know. It's a different hat. I put on my teaching hat. So, uh, so kind of get ready. Put on your thinking caps. There we go. And uh, get ready. Take some notes here. And uh, we're going to be focusing in a, a whole lot on elders, as you, as you probably heard as we started through this passage. Uh, elders was a very big part of it. Uh, God's directions to elders within the church. And so in 1 Peter 1, 
where uh, Peter opens up by addressing his letter to the many Christians who were spread throughout the region that we know as uh, modern-day Turkey. In chapter 5, Peter's really honing in on elders specifically, the elders who are among you, and he highlights their specific roles as leaders within the church. Where Peter was once talking about what holy living looks like uh, for Christians in many differing contexts, and a lot of those outside of, of the church, he was talking to Christians and saying, this is what holy living looks like in the context of marriage. Uh, you ladies, you Christian women who find yourselves in marriages uh, to men who are not Christians, this is what holy living looks like. Uh, to the, you Christians who find yourself in the context of a, of a land that has a government that is not honoring to God, this is what holy living looks like. For those of you Christians who find yourself in the context of even slavery, this is what holy living looks like. And so Peter was looking a lot at what holy living looks like outside of the church, but, uh, but now he's really kind of looking inside. He's looking internally and focusing it in. It's like, this is what holy living looks like in the context of your church, and specifically between uh, the, the elders who lead the church and the congregation and how they relate to each other. And so uh, I think that's a very pertinent conversation, as you all know. We've been discussing this for the last year and a half and, and teaching through it. Uh, for many of you who have gone through the all-in class, some of what we're going to talk about today might be a review of sorts, but I think it's good. Uh, but we've been asked to, to share and teach this on Sunday mornings as well, and so I'm going to try to honor that request and, and uh, share with you quite a bit about what this passage says about elders within the church. So the first question, because Peter's talking to the elders, what are elders? It's the million dollar question. Well, the definition of elders, one that we've shared with you before, is elders are a group of scripturally qualified godly men who have been called by the Holy Spirit to lead, feed, protect, and nurture his church. Definition of elders, it's a group. It's plural. There are multiple, all right? It's scripturally qualified. These aren't just random people off the streets. Scripture in both 1 Timothy and Titus both have passages that talk to the extensive qualifications, spiritual qualifications, so that someone can be an elder. Who are these people specifically? They are godly men. Uh, for whatever reason, in God's infinite wisdom, he has decided that men should fill this role within the church. That in no way diminishes the spiritual value and worth of any women who do not hold this, this role. Uh, the, the elders should be up here spiritually, for sure, but that is not a ceiling saying that everyone else is below them at all. That's not what this passage is saying or when Scripture is talking about elders. This is not a demeaning or diminishing um, jab at women whatsoever. But Scripture does teach that elders are groups of scripturally qualified, godly men who have been called by the Holy Spirit. Scripture actually says, appointed by God. That's who appoints the elders. And what is their task? To feed, to lead, to protect, and nurture his church. That term elder implies maturity. You know, we like to think that with age comes maturity. I think there's a whole lot of wives in here this morning that are really hoping that that is true of the men that they are married to. 
But that being said, an older man is not an elder based solely on his age. Again, sadly, age does not always bring spiritual maturity. Being an elder denotes a maturity of the heart towards God, one that has developed over time through continual prayer and obedience to God and his word, a faithfulness to using one's gifts in the context of the body of Christ to build up the church. And it also reflects a heart that has been tested and proven over time through fiery trials. Where did elders come from? Now, contrary to what it may seem, elders did not magically just appear and pop up in the New Testament. They were not a new idea that was introduced into the early church. Historically, we have to travel all the way back into the Old Testament and to kind of that same period of time that we're talking about in Gather and Grow on Wednesday nights, the time that Moses was leading the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, they entered into the wilderness and they're headed to the promised land. It is in that context that we first hear about the terms elder, the term elders being used. Numbers 11, 16, and 17 says this. God told Moses to gather 70 elders together, older men. And this is what God said to Moses. He said, then I will come down and speak with you there. I will take some of the spirit who is on you, and put the Spirit on them. They will help you bear the burden of the people so that you do not have to bear it by yourself. You hear that last part? They will help you bear the burden of the people so that you do not have to bear it by yourself. So you could say that the whole idea of elders when it was initially instituted by God, was it was started so that no one man would have to bear the burden by himself. This office of elder continued throughout the whole Old Testament period, was present in the gospel period and the in-between stages there, and is also actively present in the church today. That is as God has instituted it and has planned it to, to function throughout the history of the church. It continues through today. Now I'm going to take a little bunny trail. I like my bunny trails, but I want to identify them so you know that this is a little side topic, but I think it's worth talking through. So, some have suggested that Moses is a modern-day equivalent to a senior or a lead pastor. Uh, but I would, I would say that that is not a, a biblical correlation that is directly connected in Scripture. We might look and we might see some similarities, but in the New Testament, there is only one correlation that is made uh, to Moses, and it is not between Moses and elders or pastors. Where Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt, Jesus led us out of slavery from our sins. Moses was a prophet, and Jesus was a prophet as well. And that's the correlation that is made in the New Testament. Moses is quoted in Acts chapter 3, and this is what Moses said. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him and whatever he has to say. If you go on to read that passage a little bit more, you realize very quickly that Moses is not talking about pastors or elders. He's talking about Jesus. That is the prophet who is coming. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus is so much greater than Moses. It's a prophet on a whole different scale than even Moses was. And so again, 
that uh, we, we can't mistake that Moses is a pre-type of what pastors or elders are supposed to be today. Now, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, I want you to write down three terms, same office, all right? Again, putting our, our uh, kind of classroom hats on today. Three terms, same office, one office. I believe there's been a lot of confusion not just in our church, but I think in, in throughout Christian history, you know, in our history in the church surrounding the conversation of elders, partly because Scripture uses three terms to refer to the same office. It uses three terms, elder, bishop, which is also referred to as overseers, and pastor. Got it? Elders, bishop, and overseers, which are the same thing, and then pastors. Three terms all referring to the same office. These terms are used interchangeably to refer to the leaders of the church. That being said, the term elder is used by far the most. The term elder is used 20 times. The term overseer is used 11 times. And the term pastor, and this might be a surprise to some of you, is only used one time. One time. So 20 times for elder, 11 times for overseer, one time for pastor. And yet, I still want to affirm that all of these terms are biblical references, scriptural references to the same office. Okay, the number of times, I don't want to diminish the importance of them just because of the number of times that they were used. But I think it helps us in understanding. It's helpful to have passages in scripture that use all three of these terms together at the same time. We're very fortunate that that is true of 1 Peter 5 that we're talking through today. In 1 Peter 5, who is Peter talking to? There we go. 1 Peter 5, who is Peter talking to? Elders. There we go. He's talking to elders, but then he tells the elders to oversee, and he tells them to shepherd. He uses two verb forms of those offices, you know, of bishop and pastor to talk about what elders are actively doing within the church. You got it? So that's 1 Peter 5. And Acts 20 is another passage where Paul calls the elders from the church of Ephesus, and he instructs them to both oversee and care for the flock, which is the pastoral side of that elder function or that elder title. And then in Titus 1, it only mentions two of the, them together, but Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders in every church, and then he goes on to talk about the qualifications for these overseers. And so you see in Scripture in these passages, these three terms are used together and a lot of times interchangeably. They are referring to the same thing. Now, if this feels like new information to you, you might be a little bit concerned that, maybe this, is this outside of the realm of Baptist teaching and, uh, and our historical Baptist thinking. And I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to go to some of our historical Baptist documents to show you that this is anchored within, uh, within Baptist theology. All right, so this is a little bit of a history lesson for you history buffs. Uh, uh, let's see. So in our, some of our Baptist confessions throughout the years, the confessions refer to Baptists have two offices, the offices of elder and deacon, or leaders and servants. For our purposes, I'm just going to hone in on how our Baptist confessions have referred to the leader specifically. In the 1689 Baptist Confession, it refers to leaders with two terms and recognizing that they mean the same thing. 
refers to bishops and elders. No mention of pastor at all at that time. In the 1833 Baptist Confession and the 1853 New Hampshire Confession, the terms bishops and pastors are used, although no mention of elders. Okay, I'm sorry if this sounds a little confusing, but I'm trying to show you that uh, even within our Baptist terminology that we've used, historically, there's a combination of all three of these terms. In 1925, the Baptist Faith and Message, the term bishops and elders was primarily used. In 1963, this was the first time at the Southern Baptist Convention, this was the first time that the terms elder and bishop were completely left off, and the, the term pastor was the one term that was used to talk about this office. And that was in 1963. Although at that convention, it was noted that pastor was the same as elders and overseers as well. My question is, is why is, why is it that these terms, elder and bishop, were dropped eventually in, term, in favor of that one solo term, pastor? And I've got to admit, I don't really have a good answer for you for that. I need to study that a little bit more. You know, as I was thinking through it, you know, I could see how elders sometimes gives the impression of a bunch of crotchety old men, you know, who are opposed to progress, sitting in a dark room, you know, making decisions for everybody. I could see how people might, you know, have some, some reactions to that and be like, I don't like elders or what, you know, what that name might convey, a bunch of these old guys. That term bishop might have given the impression of a bunch of, you know, guys with long flowing robes and pointy hats. You know, and being like, I don't like that. For me, as long as they weren't wearing ties, I'm perfectly fine with whatever else they wanted to, to wear. But, you know, kind of that bishop kind of had maybe that mentality that there's a bunch of these guys who were, you know, high-minded, a little bit snooty and, you know, putting their noses up in the air. And I, I don't know, just kind of wondering. Um, may have been an attempt by the Baptist church uh, to distance themselves from other denominations and forms of polity that seemed to be going off the rail. They might have been, you know, it might have been a reaction to what other people were doing. And I suspect that might have been more of the case. But I think there might have been more of a relational re um, purpose to this. Pastor, when you just say the term pastor, it seems a lot more relational, doesn't it? It's a lot more personal and it's a lot warmer, you know, than saying overseer or elder. Pastor is kind of like, it, it pulls you in, it draws you in, and it says there's a relationship. There's a mutual relationship. And so I love that term, pastor, because it does, it does, you know, it, it does make it more of a, a personal relationship between you and that person who is leading. And for that reason, I think it's really healthy that we keep that and we affirm that term that Scripture does use. But at the same time, I think we have to understand the term pastor in the context of elders and overseers. I'll tell you why. I think there's a trend of moving away from understanding the three terms together, and it's caused harm to our understanding of leaders in general. I'll give you two examples. When we talk about pastors uh, in the context, outside of the context of elders and bishops, we generally think about pastors as that isolated, that lone um, lead senior pastor, the head of the church, the one guy where the buck stops with him. When we think of pastors isolated from the terms elders and overseers, that's generally what our thinking goes to first and foremost. But in the context, when we put pastors back in the context of elders and overseers, 
we always see elders used in plural sense, in a group sense, in relation and regard to a single individual church. Did you catch that? In Scripture, whenever we see a single church mentioned, elders are always used in the plural sense in, in relation to them. Always is a very strong term to use. And yet, that's, that's what we see used in Scripture, in the New Testament especially. In the Old Testament use of, of elders, and I'm not going to go into this, in the Old Testament, by, by and large, it's referencing multiple elders in that group, even the Old Testament. And that carries over in the New Testament. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. In Acts 20, Paul calls the elders from the church of Ephesus, called the elders, not the elder from the church of Ephesus. He called the elders from the church. Acts 20, uh, did I just mention that one? He called the church, yeah, I just mentioned that one. Philippians 1, Paul is greeting the church at Philippi in one of his letters. And in that letter, he, he greets the church, and then he greets the overseers, plural, and the deacons, plural. I think it's interesting that it's really easy for us in our minds in the church to, to readily embrace uh, why it's good to have multiple deacons, plural, that's never been contested, really, that I know of. And yet, in the matter of overseers, elders, and deacons, this is an area that we are quick to say, no, there needs to be one. And yet again, that's not what Scripture points us to. James. In the book of James, James is talking to the church, and he says, when you are sick, call for the elders. Again, plural. Now, if we thought that, think that there is one elder, pastor, senior lead pastor in every church, and that's how we should function, that would practically mean that you would have to go and find people, the pastor of all these other churches around you, and gather them together to pray for you. I don't think that what this, this is what the passage is referring to. James is saying, gather the elders that are among you, similar to what Peter is saying in this passage, to the elders among you. That is implying multiple and then, of course, in First uh, Titus, I'm sorry, in the book of Titus, um, Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders in each church. And in First Timothy, the elders laid their hand on Timothy to, uh, to bless him for, um, for ministry. And so it's the work of the elders as a group. And so when we talk about pastors in the context of elders and overseers, we should talk about groups of pastors and not necessarily one lead or senior pastor. Uh, I hope that you're kind of getting some of, some of that there. And I know that's a hard conversation. But again, when we go back to no Numbers 11, 16, and 17, it seems like that understanding of the New Testament is, is more true to that original statement that God told Moses in saying that no one man, so that no one man would have to bear the burden by himself. And I think that continues to be true today, that there's only one man that is meant to bear the burden by himself, and that is Jesus Christ for our sins. But in the context of the church, there's no man who has been called to do that. No man can do that other than Jesus Christ. Another danger of taking pastor, the term pastor, out of the context of elders and, and overseers is this. When we talk about pastors outside of the context of elders and overseers, it's a lot easier to redefine and open the term up to personal interpretation. Now, the noun pastor is only used one time. One time. And so, 
it's really easy when you take a term that you use once and try to fill in a lot of the gaps and the questions that come as a result of that. Uh, there's a, a large Baptist denomination that has been struggling through this issue. There's a large church out in California uh, that is it's very well known. And they are in the process of actively ordaining women pastors within the church. Um, they claim that all that needs that the lead pastor is the only one that needs to be a man, and that all the other all the other pastoral positions are open uh, to anyone to fulfill. If you do away with the idea that all pastors are elders and overseers, if pastors becomes their their own separate category, then we are all of a sudden free to redefine their roles and qualifications that Scripture assigns. And that's a dangerous place to be. So I believe it is extremely important for us uh, to, that we maintain this biblical connection and also historical Baptist uh, theology and doctrine of keeping these three terms, elder, overseer, and pastor, connected together to help protect us from drifting and redefining God's ideas and making them fit with our earthly wisdom and trends instead. You still have your, uh, your uh, like thinking caps on? Did I lose anybody yet? I know. It's hard. Using a lot of words. In verse 1, Peter says, as a fellow elder. Peter identifies himself as an apostle in chapter 1. But here in 1 Peter 5.1, he says, uh, Peter says, I'm a fellow elder. Why does he call himself a fellow elder? And I think part of the reason is because the roles of an apostle and an elder are very similar in a lot of ways especially in regard to their leadership capacities and function in the church. We're going to see that in this passage. But in Acts 15, we have a story of when there was this big doctrinal question within the church. There's this question of, can, do, do Gentiles need to be circumcised? That's an important question. I think all, everybody would agree here. Like, we should make sure we understand, right? That's a big question, you know. Thankfully, that question was settled back here in Acts 15. Do you know who settled it? The apostles and, guess, elders. They, they settled this question together because their functions in the early church were very similar. Two of the main differences between elders and apostles, though, and I want to point these out, is that apostles were personal witnesses to the, uh, to the life, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter says that here. He says, as a fellow elder, but then he goes on uh, to say that he has witnessed the sufferings of Jesus. And so that's one of the main dif differences between apostles and elders. But another one is that apostles, like the prophets of the Old Testament, were authoritative in that they, they could write Scripture. And so that's why in the Old Testament we have a lot of the prophets writing the scriptures. And in the New Testament we have a lot of the apostles doing the same. And so though Peter was an apostle, it's really neat to see that he didn't pull rank on the people, in the, uh, that he was, the Christians that he was writing to, to. Instead, he identified himself among the ranks of elders as a fellow elder. So what Peter had been called to is very similar to what the elders had been called to in their functions in the church. And so again, we have that question. What have the elders been called to in the function of the church? Well, one, 
Uh, we'll go to verse 2 here. The first thing that it mentions is, is elders are instructed to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd. That's the pastoral aspect of being an elder. Remember my, uh, my little brother, when he was really little, he told my mom. He's like, Mom, I want to be a pastor when I grow up. And my mom was just like, oh, it's so sweet. You know, she was so excited that at a young age, God was working his heart and that he was responding in conviction to the work of the Holy Spirit. And then my brother went and said, yeah, I want to take care of horses and cows when I grow up. And that just kind of ruined it all, and she was really bummed. And I'm glad I could be her good son that became a pastor. <laughs> but that's the pastoral element within this call of being an elder. Uh, I can't help but Peter is thinking about his own calling that he received personally from Jesus. You might re remember this in the book of John in chapter 21. Uh, Jesus, after his resurrection, he had those intimate moments where he was spending time with, with the apostles there and the disciples. And Jesus, I loved it, says after they had finished eating breakfast together, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter's like, yes, of course I do. You know that I do. I love you, Lord. And he said, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Then he, Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said, tend my sheep. And then he said to, Jesus said the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I think Peter is echoing the call that Jesus gave to him. He's given it to the elders too. And saying, you as shepherds, are called to feed my sheep. What do the sheep eat? What do they feast on? What nourishes them? What helps them to grow? Nothing other than God's word. That's what shepherds have been called to feed, is God's word. And we see this in Acts 6, where the apostles are feeding God's word actively in the church, and these problems cropped up, and the apostles are like, it's not right that we should stop teaching. Let's appoint, and it seems to be the forerunners of the deacons, to come and help so we can continue teaching because we've got to feed. If they're not being fed, we're not going to be healthy. We need feeding. And then we see that same idea of the apostles feeding uh, being, being also mirrored in the qualifications and the expectations for elders because like in 1 Timothy in the elder job description, if you will, one of the things that is unique to elders that's not true of deacons is that they are apt to teach to feed the sheep, to shepherd. And so that's what Peter is talking about here. He's like, as a fellow elder, I want you to feed the sheep. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Oversight is two words in Greek, just like it is in the English. And this idea is, is uh, like, it's looking after, caring for, or even managing Managing kind of, you know, it's like, what does that mean exactly? You know, what does that look like within the context of the church? And I think one of the passages I'd like to help explain this is 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. It says, it's talking about overseers and elders, and it says, elders, overseers must manage their households well. This is a qualification. Why? Why do elders have to manage their own households well? with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. This is why. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so I believe that God has called elders to oversee the church, much like God has called 
fathers to manage and oversee their households. That's scary when you say that on the surface because we look around and we're like, whoa, I see a lot of messed up households. And you're right. Messed up households, people who are overseeing households in conflict are not qualified biblically to be elders leading and overseeing God's church. We have to affirm that in very strong ways. I want to I read to you just a couple of things real quick about what God expects of fathers and how he wants them to manage their households because I believe it's a reflection of what elders are supposed to be doing within the church. God tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I think that's true of elders, to love the church like Christ loved the church. Fathers, train up your children the way they should go. Elders, training up the body of Christ, equipping them for ministry. Fathers, don't exasperate your children and don't provoke them to anger. Do you think that's needed in elders as well and leaders in the church? Absolutely. It's really easy for, for leaders to provoke congregation to anger, and that's not a good thing. Fathers, have compassion on their children. Elders, have compassion on people in the church. Father, disciple your children. Elders, we're discipling people in the church. Fathers, discipline your children. That's one of the hard tasks of leaders in the church is to actively discipline wayward Christians who are actively walking in disobedience to God's will, willingly, totally disregarding God's word. That's one of the roles of, of elders and all of us in the body of Christ, really. Father, and also fathers are called to teach God's word, model God's word, and are humble. And that's what elders are supposed to be as well. That's what it looks like to manage God's church. So father, when fathers do this in the home, it's a beautiful thing. That's not because the father is beautiful or his kids are beautiful because the father's modeling biblical uh, you know, obedience to God's word or the kids are actively being submissive in obedience to God's word and obeying their parents. What makes it beautiful is that God is faithful to his promises to bless the family that is actively obeying his word. It makes it beautiful. And that is true within the concept of the church as well. When the elders, not because of their own wisdom or my or power, but when they are being faithful and obedient to God's word and the congregation is at the same time being submissive as we see in this passage right here, when we're both doing what God has called us to in humility, God blesses his word, he is faithful, and something amazing happens in our relationship as a result when we are all doing what God has called us to do in our roles and functions. Peter does give a couple of cautions to the elders about their motivations as shepherds and overseers. He tells them, don't do this under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I thought it was kind of funny when I came on, uh, across this word, not under compulsion. Because we think that, you know, it's easy when you think about leaders. When, when you lead, that means you get to make all the decisions. That means you get to pick the color of the carpet. You don't have to ask anyone else what they mean you know, or what they think. You can just do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. If that's what you think biblical leading and shepherding and eldership is, I do not, I, that's not right. I don't think biblical leadership is what you think it is. Why would someone have to be compelled to be a leader, to be an elder within the church? 
Why would they need to be compelled? The answer to this, I think, is found in the context immediately preceding when Peter called the elders to shepherd and oversee. If you look back just a couple of verses, just three verses before Peter says, I exhort you. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. When Peter says, I exhort you to the elders, what I exhort literally means is an invitation to join, to join, to come by my side. And so if I were to exhort Elise over here, I'd say I'd exhort you, I would be asking her to come and join me in an effort, in an endeavor, in something going on. And so Peter, when he says, I exhort you elders, he's like, I am inviting you to come and join me in something that I am already doing. What is Peter already doing? And that's when we look at back just three verses before in chapter four, um, uh, Peter says two things. He is inviting the elders to come and join him in God's judgment and in his suffering. Those are the two things that Peter is actively inviting them to participate in. And when I found that out, I was like, no wonder they need to be compelled. Judgment begins at the house of God. Elders, leaders in the church, are going to be judged more harshly, strictly, than Christians in the broader house of God. Who wants that? Right? I can see why they would need to be compelled. Peter is saying, look at the suffering in the in verse right before he, he exhorted the, the uh, elders. He said in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That is what Peter is inviting the elders to come and join him in. I think that's why Peter continues on in verse 1. He says, as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Peter, that's a, I think that's a fancy way of saying he's inviting people into, into the suffering, saying we have witnessed the sufferings of Christ. He's saying I'm a partaker of the glory uh, that is going to be revealed. I think that's a fancy way of saying that I have suffered with Christ as an apostle. I can't help but Peter's thinking back to the time early, like in the beginning of the church days, when the apostle James was arrested and killed, was martyred by King Herod. King Herod found out that the people liked it when he killed the apostles, the leaders of the early church. And so King Herod went and took uh, a Peter. He had Peter arrested and brought him back to, you know, it put, had him in prison. What was his intentions for Peter? He was going to kill him too. Peter had a lot of sufferings, and they're not all documented in Scripture, but we see that Peter's call to the elders was a call to join him in suffering for the sake of Christ. You see that? I think we can see that even more clearly. I think this is really, really neat. But when you look right after Jesus was eating breakfast with Peter, you remember that? We read that passage. Jesus told Peter, he's like, feed Feed my sheep. Do you feed my sheep? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He kept saying that over and over again. Do you know what happened right after Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep? He said this in John 21. He says, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. 
But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where, where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. The call to feed the sheep at the same exact time that that happened was a call to suffer for the sake of Christ. I can see why people would need to be compelled for this call to be leaders, to be elders, to be overseers, to be pastors in the church. And so again, Peter's invitation called to the elders to shepherd and oversee was at the same exact time an invitation to join him in his sufferings. I can't help but step back and think through the whole book of 1 Peter. It's a call for Christians to go through suffering in a God-glorifying way because it's how God produces holiness in our lives. How is God going to do that within the church unless we have leaders who have already done that themselves? How can we teach, lead, model, and pray for people and expect them to go through suffering if we haven't done that ourselves? That's the expectation on leaders here. Verse 2 and 3, it continues on. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This reminded me of another passage where Jesus was getting on to the, the scribes and the Pharisees because they modeled what domineering looked like. They modeled what shameful gain looked like by the elders, by leaders in, uh, in amongst the Jews there. In Matthew 23, 1 through 7, I won't read it all, but it said the scribes and uh, Pharisees, they tied up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they laid them on people's shoulders, but they themselves were not willing to move them with their fingers. Does that sound, sound like domineering? Expecting everyone else to do the work, to do the hard part, and then you just sit back and you take it easy. It goes on. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. You know, they have this, they're dressed up. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. It was all about them, how people viewed them, about their wealth, their status, their position in society. That's why the scribes and Pharisees were called out by Jesus. And so when Peter is talking to the elders and how they, they lead the church, he's saying, this is not how you do it. You are not domineering. You are not putting a burden on everyone else that you are not carrying yourself. He's telling them how to lead. I think Jesus' disciples struggled with this early on, right? Because when we look at them, what, what were they fighting over, you know, when, the, when the, Jesus was, you know, like up ahead as they were walking down the street? Who's going to be first in the kingdom? Who's going to sit on his right? Who's going to sit at his left hand? Jesus had to get on to his disciples and teach them that's not what it's, what it's about. That's not what godly leadership or being a Christian is all about. You got it all wrong. And then verse 4, Peter continues and says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I think this is in direct contrast to all the things that leaders could possibly gain when they are trying to do elder leadership in the wrong way. All of the things that... We could possibly gain from man, whether it's wealth or power or prestige or a, a nice seat at the, uh, the next, you know, huge, or at the Super Bowl today. You know, all those things will fade, but there's one thing that will not fade, 
and that is the eternal, uh, the crown of a, uh, unfading crown of glory, as Peter says here. Now, just a couple last things before we need to close up here is one big question. We've talked about elders, that God has called elders. I'll go back to that definition of elders here. I'll read it to you one more time to keep it fresh in your mind. What's the definition of elders? Did anybody memorize it? Here it is. A group of scripturally qualified godly men who have been called by the Holy Spirit to feed, lead, protect, and nurture his church. God has called those kind of men to lead. Next question is, what is God's expectation to the congregation? How does the congregation respond to these men? How does the congregation respond to these men? And I think there's one word that we have seen repeatedly mentioned throughout the book of First Peter, and it's submission. That word submission drives so many of us bonkers, but we've seen it throughout Scripture and the New Testament. We see that submission is not a dirty word. Jesus practiced submission to the Heavenly Father. We've got to mention that. Uh, we, we see that Christians are called to submit to each other. It is a normal part in how we relate to each other. Jesus practiced it to the Heavenly Father. We call to submit to each other. In 1 Peter, uh, wives are called to submit to their husbands. In 1 Peter, we as Christian citizens and, and non-Christian lands are called to submit to the governing authorities. We are called to submit to every human institution. How much more? If God expects us as, as Christian citizens living in ungodly lands and he expects us to submit to them because they are God, God has placed them in that role and, and obeying them is like obeying God. If that is what God expects of us towards a, a human institution, what do you think God's expectations for us and the church should be towards a, a church-based God-exalting, glorifying institution of elder leadership within his church. Submission. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. I think it kind of rankles us because we don't like the idea of submitting to someone who doesn't have to submit. I think that's not what God is describing in the church context at all. One, because all elders have to submit to God. That's, that's part of their godly qualifications. But I think this is one of, the, one of the things that we easily overlook in why there is a need for elders to be plural, why there need to be plural pastors within the church, is because I, as a pastor, need to be constantly submitting to, also need to be submitting to the leadership of the church. Does that make sense? If I'm the only one, there's no one that I have to submit to. But if I'm in the context of a group of pastors, elders, and overseers, then what I am asking you to do actively within the church is nothing different than what I am currently practicing in my own life, in my own relationships with the men who are leading our church. Do you see the beauty within what God has designed, how God has designed the church and leaders within the church to function? We don't put a burden on anyone else that we are not bearing. We see this call to submission in verse 5. Peter says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now you're like, whoa, Pastor John, you just told us we all need to be subject to the elders. And here it says only the younger, uh, the, only the younger people need to. So that gives us an out. Uh, actually, some passages uh, interpret this as saying younger men, not just younger people, but younger men. 
And I will say that I believe this passage, while it is talking to younger people and younger men specifically, I believe Scripture teaches that this is broadly uh, directed towards all of us. Hebrews chapter 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. It's talking to the church. Why is Peter specifically calling out the young men or the younger people uh, within, this, uh, within this passage. And I think the reason is, is twofold. One, I think it's because the young men are the ones who are going to be the leaders one day. And so who is the, some of the most likely people to try to, to not submit, to overthrow, if you will, like David, King David's kids? You know, Absalom was sitting in the temple courts and was judging the people, and he was actively trying to subvert the king so he could take his place. I think that's a natural position for young men to find themselves in. And yet Peter's saying, no, that's not your role. Your role is to submit. So I think that's the one reason that Peter talked to the young men specifically. I think another reason is because if you are going to lead and you're going to teach people to submit to you, you need to understand as a young man, as a young man what it is like to be an act of submission to. What's the greatest, you know... Being able to submit yourself and understand what unhealthy domineering sometimes looks like will keep you from hopefully being a domineering leader, which God, which Scripture speaks against. This is to actively teach them the kind of leaders that they are supposed to one day be. They need to learn compassion. They need to learn how to lead without lording. Practicing submission helps them to know how to do that well. Closing up, I think part of the reason that Peter is addressing the issues of elders and congregation at the end of his letter again is because the church is composed of a bunch of people who are sinners. Some of them just yesterday, they were just completely without God's grace. Today, they are now Christians and they don't know how to, leave, they don't know how to live that out. Not only do you have a church that is composed of sinners, but you have sinners who God just told us throughout the book of 1 Peter that God is using trials and suffering, fiery trials, to test them, to purify them, to make them more like Christ. And so we have many immature and sometimes mature sinners who are going through very levels of suffering and hurt, all getting together within the same building, trying to do life together. And my question is, how does that possibly seem like a good idea? A bunch of hurting people. All together, who are sinners going through this together? That seems horrible, doesn't it? <laughs> but that's the foolishness of God puts to shame the wisdom of man. I think this is like the craziest idea ever. How is this possibly going to work? This whole idea of all these hurting people. We hurt each other. We're sinners. We sin towards each other. How is that possibly supposed to reflect the glory of God? Great question. And I think the reason or the key to unlocking, to turning this group of people who are hurting and suffering and hurting each other so often, the key to turning that around and making it into something that glorifies God and exalts him comes in the very next verse. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How are we supposed to relate to each other in the church? With humility, all of you. doesn't matter where you're at. Be humble. Because if you're not, whether you're a leader, an elder, overseer, 
pastor or whether you're in the congregation, whatever capacity, God will actively oppose you if you are prideful and, and arrogant. So that is our call. That is our practical application from this passage today is be humble. And I'll let Pastor Preston finish off the rest of 1 Peter 5 for you next week.